the first thing that I tell athletes who are injured, it's like, let's focus on what you can do, not what you can't. You can't run. And oftentimes when we're injured, that's the thing that we focus on. Like, God, I can't, I can't run. This is awful. It sucks. And yes, it absolutely does. But you can do something in most cases. 99% of people who are injured can do something. So if you can do any of those things that I just described, go and do those. And that's going to give you a sense of purpose. It's going to help you feel like you're working towards something and it's going to help you to either maintain or continue to develop your fitness. If you can't, maybe it's a good opportunity to get in the gym and go work on becoming a stronger athlete. If the reason that you got injured is because there's a weakness somewhere that you hadn't addressed, this is your chance to go and address that. And when you are able to get back to running, you are gonna have a more solid foundation than you did before you got injured and hopefully won't get injured again. So bottom line is focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. Hey, what's up everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are back by popular demand with Ask Mario Anything, episode number two. Sitting across from me at my kitchen table is my friend and editorial assistant, Jeff Stern. Jeff, welcome back to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me back at your kitchen table. It's been a few months since we've caught up. I know you raced a little bit of cross country this fall. What have you been up to on the running side of things? Um, I, you know, I was coaching high school cross country, so That's that uh, took a bunch of my time up in the fall. Had a good season with the kids. Uh, moved into a new division, so it was a bit of a challenge. But uh, you know, with challenge, you're always learning and, uh, and figuring things out. So that was good. Um, and then I raced a half marathon a couple weeks ago that I was building for that went pretty well um, too. So yeah, that's kind of been my fall in a nutshell. How many years have you coached high school cross country? Uh, this was my fourth year now. Okay. Yeah. What were some of the biggest things that you learned this season? Man, our uh, our team grew by about 25%. Oh, wow. And just the, the sheer number of teenagers you have around, it becomes really hard to kind of control and gather them and get them to focus and play attention, pay attention. Um, they all have their kind of little groups within the group. So kind of making everyone feel like one big family, I felt like was more of a challenge this year, especially with the bigger numbers. Um, but other than that, I mean, they're all great kids and they all are super respectful and, um, yeah, it was just a good season all in all. Well, I imagine too, in a group that big, you've got some kids who are a bit faster and more experienced and you've got other kids who have just joined the team and maybe aren't as fast or maybe not as dedicated. How do you balance those two different types of athletes? Yeah, you know, we end up splitting up kind of like an A and B group when we're doing training runs, whether, you know, they're track workouts or fart licks or a longer run. Um, so that helps. Um, and definitely, actually, this being my fourth year was the first time I've seen someone that I had as a freshman go all the way through to senior year and finally graduate. And that was a pretty good feeling. And I feel like those two to three kids all were kind of almost they they took a part of me with them sure. as they left and they were really solid leaders and a lot of the freshmen and sophomores looked up to them and they were definitely helpful and and having the bigger team we could kind of lean on them to lead and guide a little bit as well so well that's the thing about being in a scholastic environment like that when you've been at it for three or four years and you get a kid as a freshman and you see them develop and mature over the course of their high school career and then see them off to the world and they are a different person than when you started with them. And that's got to be a really good feeling. I see it myself coaching older athletes and we don't have 
a defined four-year period, but a lot of the folks that I've worked with, I've worked with for three to eight or 11 years, and they're not kids, but you see how they've developed as an athlete, how their outlook on the sport has changed, how they've maybe changed as a person or their relationship with running, and I think that's one of the most gratifying things about coaching. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm always looking forward to cross country starting, you know, sometime around July, August. And uh, but then I'm always a little burnt out on it by the end of the the season as well, just because it takes so much energy and you're so invested and involved in it. So it's always a good like chapter to close out the year. It's a, it's a great way to kind of end it all. Tell me a little bit more about the half marathon that you ran. Did you exceed meet come right on to your expectations how did it play out for you yeah that's a good question uh you know i i set pretty lofty expectations for myself i think i've just always done that so uh, i didn't quite uh hit what i thought i i was capable of on the day but i still ran a, a massive pr and negative split um finishing with like four consecutive faster miles all the way to the finish so i mean you can't ask for anything better than that and the conditions were perfect it was down in monterey which is a beautiful course that runs right along the ocean there and uh yeah met a couple new people that became friends saw some old friends it was uh, it was a great experience through and through so that's great i'd love to dig into that a little bit more and i swear to those of you listening jeff is going to be asking me questions that <laughs> you my listeners have submitted but i'm really interested in how yourself as an athlete how you reconcile setting a goal i don't know what your time goal was but you said you came up a little bit short of it but still ran a big PR. Some people beat themselves up in a situation like that where they're like, no, but my goal was this and I didn't hit it. Uh, even though I did PR, they can often lose sight of that. So what did you have to do to remind yourself that, hey, this was an awesome day. You obviously finished very strong. You walked away with a personal best, even though it was a little bit short of what you were targeting going into it. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in perspective that, you know, every day and every race we're we're taking steps in one direction or the other. And, you know, sometimes you want to take a huge leap, but realistically you need to take a step back almost and be like, you know, these baby steps are actually going to help lead me to those kind of great breakthroughs down the line. And so it's almost more rewarding to aim really high, come up a little bit short and then go back to work and just chip away at it a little bit more rather than like destroying your goal from the very first, you know, attempt. And then it's like, well, what do you do from there? You're almost like a little bit lost. Um, so to keep kind of that star, that Northern, you know, star, that light in the, in the sky and just keep progressing and, and chipping away, I think, um, helps keep it in perspective and, and makes it a little bit uh, easier to swallow, maybe not quite getting what you were completely looking for, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I think that's a great perspective and a great reminder for me and everyone else listening to this that it's okay to come up a little bit short. You've got to recognize your victories. I think oftentimes, like, you know, we are looking at the 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 entire like you know war as a whole and we forget the little battles that we fight and win you know along the way and i think it's important that you recognize those victories no matter how small or how big they are and even if they aren't a victory even if you come up like way short of your goal the important thing good or bad is that you learn something from it and you take something away from it that you can apply so moving forward you can take that next step yeah exactly 
Uh, last bit before we get into the Ask Me Anything questions on the professional side of things. You coach cross country this fall. We just talked about that. Uh, you've been helping me out with the morning shakeout, doing social media, reposting some stuff to the website. What else are you working on at this time? So I know that you have your hand in a few different pots. Yeah, you know, a few different kind of consulting projects on the, the marketing side for some brands in the industry, outdoor running, cycling space, um, and then also coaching some athletes myself. So adult kind of online coaching as well. Um, keeps me busy too. Awesome. And bring it back to running one more time yeah. uh, to wrap this up. We are early December right now, New Year's right around the corner. What are your personal goals heading into 2020? Um, you know, I'm I'm excited. It's going to be my like third full year of completely committed to running uh, after riding bikes and racing uh, bikes for a while. And I'm really excited for the Big Sur Marathon, actually, in April. Sweet. Um, and then I'm going to jump into, I think, an ultra in the in the late winter, early spring, just to, you know, get back out there. Way too cool. I don't know. I was there a couple of years ago, and I love that event, and I feel like that's a fun one. Uh, have some kind of unfinished business there, and um, yeah, that's what I'm really looking forward to. And really good timing, honestly, relative to something like Big Sur, which is probably four or five weeks later, I think. And yeah. nice thing about Way Too Cool, it's definitely a runner's ultra. Right. It doesn't have a crap ton of climbing. The trails aren't that technical. And if you're in good marathon shape, you can really rip one there. Yeah, that's kind of the plan. So <laughs> I love it. Well, let's get into the Ask Me Anything, Ask Mario Anything questions. We had a number of submissions. We are definitely not going to get to all of them over the course of the next 40 to 60 minutes or so. But why don't you start where you feel like starting and I will try to provide the best answers that I possibly can. All right. The first question comes from Sean C uh, and he asks, which coaches have influenced your approach to coaching in the past and who has been shifting your view recently? Great question. Um, I've had a number of direct and indirect influences over the course of my entire running career. So going back to college, the first coach that had a real personal impact on me is Karen Bowen at Stonehill College. She's still there. I was fortunate enough to see her a couple weekends ago at the NCAA Division II cross-country championships in Sacramento. She's now in her 23rd year, I believe, at Stonehill uh, coaching the men's and women's cross-country teams. She took over cross-country my junior year of college for the men, and she was my track coach since my freshman year. And she's the first coach that I ever had complete trust and faith in. If she told me to run through a wall, I would have done it. And her own background as a competitive athlete was pretty strong. She was a sub 17 minute 5k runner. Uh, she has a degree in exercise science. So she had that experience as an athlete, but also the technical knowledge of how the body works and responds to stress. And I learned a lot from her. I'm a curious person by nature. So not that I questioned everything that we did, but I wanted to know the reasons behind the different types of workouts that we would do during cross-country season, during track. And Coach was a big Jack Daniels disciple, and I remember her talking to me a lot about kind of like cruise intervals and, you know, how those work and tempo runs and why they're important and you get the most bang for your buck. And I remember her giving me a copy of Daniel's running formula with a lot of her own like marginalia notes like in there that I took a lot away from. So, I mean, her approach to training worked really well for me as an athlete. I developed 
quite a bit under her tutelage in college. I went from, you know, 436 miler going into 409 miler going out like 1635K to like a 1435K by the time I graduated and was an All-American in cross country. So I believed in everything that she was telling me. And it wasn't just me. I mean, she had had success in the few years that she was at Stonehill before I arrived there. And since then, I mean, the men's cross country team has been a national 17 years. They've had numerous All-Americans. They've had NCAA Division II athletes of the year. And she was one of the biggest influences has been and continues to be one of the biggest influences on me as a coach, not just from what I learned about putting together a training program, but the most impressive thing about Coach Bowen is she cared immensely about all of her athletes as people first. She wanted you to run better, yes, but she wanted you to get a good education at Stonehill. She wanted to make sure that running occupied a healthy place in your life and that the rest of your lifestyle supported the running pursuit that you had partaken. And that really impacted me as an athlete in my late teens, early 20s. And it's something that continues to influence me as a coach today. So that was the most direct. And then in the years after college, um, I worked with a number of coaches. Kevin Curtin, who is now coaching at Brandeis University, I believe, but he was the coach of Reebok Boston at the time. He was a disciple of Bob Sevenay, who is, for those of you who don't know, a legend in the coaching world. He worked with Joan Benoit Samuelson. He said, just Google like Bob Sevenay coaching resume. That's S-E-V-E-N-E. And you'll see like all the people that he's worked with, like numerous like mid 13 minute like 5k guys uh, I think he worked with Lynn Jennings for a while he's a great cross country runner uh, he you know coach slash advised Jim Benoit through most of her career and he built a really big thing in kind of the 90s with like Nike Boston which became Reebok Boston I ran on Reebok Boston for Kevin for a while and Kevin was trained by, by Sev and uh, a lot of what he did he learned directly from Sev and in 2005, my first year out of school, I actually, first time I ever visited California, I flew out to Monterey because I had uh, some college rivals, Carl Meese and Ryan Box specifically, that were part of Team USA Monterey Bay, and they were training with Sev's group uh, in like 2005. And I stayed with them for like eight days, and I ran their workouts way behind them, but I ran their workouts with them, and I spent a lot of time with Sev and got to go to lunch with him and pick his brain and just learned a lot about his kind of like no nonsense approach to training that he had developed, you know, over the years. But you know, same sort of thing that I took away from Coach Bone. He really cared about you know his athletes and wanted to make sure that he was developing the entire person along with that. So um, Seb never coached me directly, but Kevin did for a couple of years. And I learned a lot about him uh, because he took it directly from Seb. He ran for him as an athlete and he was an apprentice under him before Seb moved out to California. So that was a big one for me. Uh, in 2012, I was coached by Alan Culpepper for a year, two-time Olympian. He was a colleague of mine at the competitor group and we would go for lunch runs and I asked him to coach me for uh, the 2012 LA marathon. And he was only working with a handful of athletes at the time. So he was kind of learning the ropes of, of coaching, applying what he had learned as an athlete and a student of the sport to other athletes who were working toward their goals and learned a lot about being ready for the day. Alan didn't care what kind of shape I mean, to some degree, care what kind of shape you were in, you know, 12 or 16 weeks out for the race. But he really taught me to not overanalyze any one workout, not overanalyze any one week, he said. And and he 
live this throughout his entire career because whenever the chips were down, whether it was trying to make a team or it was a major marathon, like Alan Culpepper showed up and, you know, he made teams and he put himself, you know, on the podium and he just had a very consistent career. And he really drilled into my head that it's not about any one workout. It's not about any one week. It's really not even about any one training cycle sometimes. Like this is all cumulative. And what matters is that when you show up on the start line, like you've got to be ready and just take confidence from, you know, all your training. So those were a lot of like the direct influences that I had on my coaching. And then indirectly over the years, I've been fortunate through my work at competitor and beyond that I've interviewed a lot of the top athletes and coaches in the sport. And I've got to have some very technical conversations about structuring workouts and training programs and what a marathon cycle looks like and recovery after a race and like all those sorts of things. Um, but I've also gotten to dig deeper into developing the entire person, developing a team culture, developing uh, an athlete over the course of a long period of time. And some of those coaches in no particular order and no particular time frame that stand out to me are Frank Gagliano, who I've had on the podcast. I was fortunate enough to get to spend, you know, a day with him in New York this past spring. Uh, and I learned so much in that short period of time. And he and I have stayed in touch since then. And if I have questions, he's very gracious in answering them. Uh, so he's been a big influence on me. I'd call that direct. I, I mean, I can't even remember the number of coaches that I've talked to for articles that I've written about training. Um, ben Rosario at Northern Arizona Elite. I've been to a Jack Daniels clinic and I've talked to him about coaching. Um, Greg McMillan, who actually lives here in Marin County, I've known him for several years and now I see him on a regular basis. I've learned a lot from you know his book, You Only Faster, articles that he's written. I've had him uh, as a source for many articles that you know that I've written. Uh, I've never met Renato Canova, but he's been a big influence on me. I've learned a lot about him through Brad Hudson, who I have gotten to know personally and have interviewed um, for articles that I've worked on. But Renato is a bit of a game changer as far as modern marathon training goes. He didn't invent any of it. He took a lot of what he learned from other Italian coaches over the years, but really specificity of training in the marathon, the importance of fueling, uh, which I think we're going to talk about later in this Ask Me Anything. So I know we had a few fueling related questions um, and how marathon training is very different from training for a 10k or for a half marathon it's not just go to the track and run two fast workouts and make your long run a little bit longer every week um, the long run is your key workout and you should be running a lot of them within five to ten percent of marathon pace and that has an effect on your body's ability to process fuel and the rhythm of you know running at at around that intensity is is important you got to revisit that you know regularly and just super compensation and big, hard, long days uh, supplemented by long stretches of, of easy running. And I've learned a lot digging into you know his training philosophy. So I could go on and on and on. And I feel like I have been going on and on and on for a while on this question, but those are some of the direct influences that I've had on my coaching practice. Uh, and has anyone been shifting your view recently? Are any of these new coaches coming in that have kind of brought in um, new ideas for you? I'm always reevaluating what I'm doing and what I've done, and that's with the athletes that I've worked worked with in the past, or approaches that I've taken, you know, toward getting someone ready for like a marathon or a 5K. I would say 
not so much a, a shift, but more of a, a reinforcement of what I'm seeing recently. And it's not from any coaches in particular, but you know, it's the importance of the low hanging fruit from a recovery standpoint, sleep, eating well, um, you know, making sure you've got good relationships in your life. Like some of the stuff that is easy to lose sight of because we get bogged down, you know, sort of in the technical details. So from like a technical and programming perspective, no, not really. I, I can't think of anything that, you know, I've, I've majorly shifted. I'm always like changing workouts up and like, you know, how I'm structuring a, a training program depending on the athlete and what their history is and where they want to go and like what we need to accomplish, but no like radical shifts as far as that goes. I mean, I've seen enough success from my athletes over the years that I have a pretty good idea of, of generally, you know, what works, but this is all an ongoing experiment. I think if you think you've got a formula that is the way to a faster marathon or the way to conquering an, an ultra, at some point that formula is going to get broken and you've got to reevaluate it anyway. So I've, I'm constantly like reevaluating like what I'm doing and staying on my toes and um, tweaking, you know, where necessary. But I think it's just for me, it's reminding my athletes like, hey, there are some very fundamental things here from a training and recovery standpoint, such as, you know, just getting good sleep, eating high quality foods that are going to make a bigger impact on your performance and anything that you can go buy at a store. Because I get that question all the time too. Should I buy compression socks? Should I buy this roller or that roller? Do I need a Theragun? Do I need boots? Like all this other stuff. And it's like, well, no, you need to go sleep eight hours a night and you need to eat higher quality foods. That's why you feel like crap, not because you don't have the right recovery tools. Yeah, I think you're right. I think so many people overlook the little things is what I would call them. And they could have big, big changes to what you're already doing. It's easy to get bogged down in the minutia of everything, um, of all of this recovery stuff of should I run 800 meter repeats or thousand meter repeats? It's like that stuff's it's important, but it's not that important relative to you know the bigger picture that you're doing your workouts you know consistently that you're not skipping things that you're staying healthy that you're fueling yourself well um and i it sounds really fundamental and all of us are like nodding our heads but all of us also lose sight of that at one point or another and a lot of what i do and i've said this maybe on this podcast but certainly other podcasts i've been interviewed on my main job as a coach is to provide perspective for people and that's like right now the freshest perspective that i'm providing people is that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that many of us aren't taking care of and if we can take care of those things all of the other details are going to fall into place this question from teal uh, i feel like i'm getting slower by the day and my running friends are leaving me in the dust i already do weekly track and speed work long runs and a couple easy moderate runs as well what are a few simple things i can do to get faster in addition, I cross-trained with cycling, Pilates, yoga, and some weightlifting. So I looked at that before we got on the mics, and my first thought was, you should probably just do a little bit less. Um, I think if you're running that consistently, which is important, you should run consistently and as frequently as you can handle. Um, in addition to weight training, cross-training of various sorts, um, if you're doing that, I'd be curious where the recovery fits in. Um, because if you're maintaining a high level of activity notice i didn't use the word training but if you're maintaining a high level of activity that includes hard workouts easy moderate runs long runs various types of cross training chances are you're probably not dedicating enough time to recovery and you're just in this state of like semi fatigue all the time and you're not getting as much as you can out of your speed workouts um 
you could just be heavy legged from you know all this additional crushing again i don't know much about the details of this person training but that's the first thing that jumps out to me um the other thing i would say is reevaluate the speed workouts that you're doing how frequently are you doing them oftentimes people are doing too many speed workouts and they're just deadening their legs i mean they're never giving themselves a chance to recover from the tuesday session because they're doing one on thursday and then they're doing one on saturday and more often than not when i take on a new athlete or i'm evaluating someone's program that i haven't written oftentimes the biggest adjustment that i'm making is spacing out their quality sessions they're doing too many quality sessions in succession and when you do when you do that long enough, uh, you'll see a response to a point and then eventually, you know, you're just not going to respond. You plateau and you get stale. So I would reevaluate that. Um, you don't need to be going that hard that often. And last thing I'd add that I didn't see in that question is make sure you're doing some speed maintenance a couple times a week. Speed maintenance is not a full workout. These are strides 20 second acceleration six to eight of them usually before a workout to get your legs prime but after easy runs two or three times a week they're not a big stress to the body um, but they do really help develop your speed if you're not doing them regularly so i would make sure that you know you're doing some sort of of you know speed maintenance speed development uh throughout the year speed development speed maintenance, they're different things uh speed development is you know actually like sprinting and like working on explosiveness but let's say speed maintenance um you know a few times a week so that your legs are turning over and you're not losing that but in addition to that uh, just make sure you're not doing too much because if you're doing too much you're not going to be able to get as much out of your speed workouts so would you say it's better to do more speed maintenance and less speed development in any given week? Yeah. If you're doing strides a few times a week, I mean, that is enough of a neuromuscular stimulus that, you know, your basic speed is going to improve or at least you're going to maintain it really well. Um, but they're not meant to like really develop your fitness like a traditional track workout is or a hill workout is. And I would say in terms of the workouts themselves, it's easy to do too much too often, but also make sure you've got good variety in there. Like if you're going to the track, you know, over the course of a training cycle, you should have some shorter, faster intervals in there that are 5K pace or even like a little bit faster. A good chunk of them should be maybe 5K to half marathon pace because you can do a lot of work at that type of intensity and still recover from it. There should also be some longer, steadier efforts at a more like half marathon, you know, marathon pace. So make sure there's variety like in your workouts uh, because someone says a speed workout and I don't know exactly, you know, what they mean because you could say a speed workout to you know, Joe Schmo over here and he's like, oh yeah, that's me going to the track every week and running 12 by 400, um, with my mates. And you could ask the guy next to him, like, what's the speed workout? And he's like, oh, that's like me doing six by a mile at 10 K base. And those are two very different things and developing two very different systems. So, you know, I would just make sure that there's good variety in the program and that you're not doing too much too often. Next question from Steven. I often hear that you should eat breakfast three to four hours before the start of your marathon, but I also hear that you shouldn't do anything new on marathon race day. Does this mean that I should be getting up at 3 a.m. to have breakfast before my 7 a.m. Saturday long runs during my marathon build? A few things in response to that question. There is no official rule that says you have to eat three to four hours before your marathon. Most people need 
that amount of time to digest their breakfast. Um, and if that is you, yes, you should practice that before your long runs, your key sessions for marathon training. It takes a little bit of sacrifice because it often means you've got to get up earlier. But if you're trying to do your long runs at the time that the race is going to be uh, and the race is at 7 o'clock, yeah, that might mean you have to get up at 3, 4 a.m. But you can also do your key long runs a little bit later if you need to or if your schedule allows. It's not going to make that much of a difference, which means then you're getting up at 5 or 6 as opposed to, you know, 3 or 4. And so at least the spacing from when you wake up and when you eat to when you run is the same, even if the hours are shifted a bit. So that's one way to approach it. Also, I know some people who can eat two hours, you know, before their race. I mean, oftentimes especially bigger races, you've got to be up three or four hours ahead of time anyway because the logistics of getting to the start line are such a hassle. It's rare that, especially for a marathon, you can get up an hour or two before the race and still be on the start line um, you know, with time to spare. So I would say if you don't want to eat three to four hours out or you don't need to eat three to four hours out because you can eat two hours out and still be okay – you know, get up when you need to, to make sure you get to the start line on time or before your run and like have a little something two hours, you know, before. And when you get to race day, don't do anything different. So that would be my recommendation in that situation. It's either, you know, shift your long run so that you're running a little bit later, but the spacing from when you eat to when you run is the same as it will be on race day. Uh, or, you know, suck it up every once in a while and run at the time that the race is going to start and get up at three or four so you know what that's like um or just don't wait to three to four hours before go two hours before if you can get away with it but you got to know yourself and that takes some experimentation you're probably going to screw it up before you figure out what works and a lot of people don't like to hear that but that's the reality of it there's no perfect formula you've got to try different things and find out what works for you yeah, I mean, I would I would add to that just tinkering, right? You don't know. Maybe you are a two hour person, or maybe you're a four and a half hour person. You don't know until you try it. So exactly. Next question from Rochelle with regards to coaching: What, in your opinion, makes someone qualified to coach amateur amateur runners? Experience, credentials. What makes someone's a, a good coach who is fit enough to guide runners in reaching their goals? That is a loaded question. <laughs> I don't know that there is a blanket answer to it. Uh, coaching credentialing is a tricky topic because you can get credentialed by a number of different organizations, some of whom are sport governing bodies, others are private people who've created their own certifications and supposedly that's supposed to mean something. So I would be skeptical of, of the certifications. Doesn't mean they're all bad, doesn't mean they're all good, um, but I would explore different ones that you might be interested in and see if it's a fit for you, if you can learn something from going through the process of getting credentialed, but it doesn't automatically make you a better coach. I think coaching starts with curiosity. You've got to be curious about the athletes that you're working with. You've got to be curious about how they've gotten to where they are and what you can do to help them get to where they want to go. Um, I think you've got to be a student of the sport. You've got to really have a hunger for understanding training theory and philosophy. You've got to learn how to interact with people uh, because that's at the heart of it. Coaching is not just writing training programs and saying, hey, do this on Monday, do this on Tuesday, do this on Wednesday. That's certainly a part of it, but that's not coaching. Um, you've got to 
understand how an athlete certainly responds to training at a physiological level, but also on an emotional level. And that just takes experience. I think you've also got to understand, and this takes experience and time, what type of athletes you work with. Um, it's okay that if your lane is beginner runners, maybe you're really good at working with beginner runners and you've shown over time that you've got an aptitude for that. And that's great. Doesn't mean you have like not everyone's going to coach elites or graduate to coaching elites or or whatever. It's going to depend on sort of your background, your interests, um, certification side of it. Again, just like explore what's out there. I mean, there are uh, a lot of educational opportunities through USA Track and Field, Roadrunners, Club of America, um, you know, private ones like Jack Daniels, like VDOT type coaching. Um, but you know, whether you go through one of those certification programs or not, educate yourself in some way by go, go to coaching clinics or ton of those throughout the year. They are worth the money if they're good because you can learn a lot from experienced coaches who've been at this for a while. Um, Understanding the body, how it responds to stress is important. Doesn't mean you have to have an exercise science degree. I don't. Uh, a lot of coaches that I know don't, but you have to. You have to know that at least on a, on a basic level. Um, so if you're not of that background, go buy some books and you know kind of learn basic physiology and how you know applying various types of stress is going to affect an athlete. How often you can do that. What you know recovery is going to look like from certain types of workouts. I don't know if I'm answering that question, but that's, uh, that's my sort of like take on coaching and then just start coaching people. Um, I have a lot of people who come to me and they're like, you know, how do I get started? And it's like, start coaching people. I mean, I didn't know that I wanted to be a coach right away. I had people come up to me and say, Hey, will you help me prepare for this event? And that was a good way for me to get my feet wet and get started because I had to get to know that person. Uh, if I didn't know them already, I had to understand what their goals are, where they were coming from, how I could you know, possibly help them get there, but just start working with people. Um, and that is gonna be the best way that, you, well, one of the only ways that you gain actual experience coaching because you can read all the books in the world and go to all the clinics in the world, but if you don't work directly with an athlete, you're not applying anything that you learned. So you've got to start at some point, you've got to start applying it. But I would just say, jump in and start. Don't overwhelm yourself at the beginning. Take on a small number of athletes at a level or ability level, I should say, that you're comfortable with and let it grow from there. Learn stuff from every single one of them. Take copious notes, revisit your notes. Um, and that is how you're going to develop as a coach. I don't know when you said it, but I, I maybe it was earlier this year, a tweet or in conversation, but there was a, a misconception that coaches know everything. They have everything figured out. And I think it's always a learning process, right? Even, you know, whether you're at the beginning Constantly. or whether you've been coaching for 30 years, you're always kind of learning. And the best way to do is just to get out there and test it out. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask questions. I think oftentimes coaches, newer coaches feel like they have to know everything or they can't work with an athlete. No coach in history has had all the answers. And I would be weary of a coach who says, I have all the answers or I have the solution. Let me show it to you. No, I would, I would be more trusting of the coach who's asking you a lot of questions because that shows that they are interested in getting to know you on a deeper level. And 
that is that is how they are going to gain knowledge. And if you go to a coach and they don't have the answer to your question, that's okay. And as a coach, if you don't have the answer to one of your athletes' questions, that's okay. But you should go find someone who does or find a way to figure out what that answer is. So you can go back to the athlete and say, hey, I got the answer to your question. I talked to so-and-so medical expert or whatever, and here is what you know, they told me, or here's what the research has said. Um, you know, that is, that is a coach who cares. That is a, a coach who is willing to, you know, go the extra mile to learn something that they don't know. So next question is from Austin and it kind of, uh, connects with what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, good timing for at the end of the year, I think too, how do you find peace after missing out on big goals? I think it's, you know, reminding yourself that, a goal, a race, it's one day. And one day does not define you for better or worse. There are no endpoints. There are just checkpoints. And I think it's important to step back after a performance and look at the entire picture a little more holistically. Where did that performance fit into this training cycle, where does it fit into your overall year? How does it fit into your overall trajectory as an athlete over the course of your career? What did you learn from it? That's the important thing is like, what did you learn from the race? Whether you ran a huge personal best and you smashed all of your goals out of the water because you still learned something from that or you miss completely. And it's when you miss completely that getting that perspective is most important because that's going to help pick you back up and it's going to help you get back out there and work toward it again. I mean, everyone's going to be disappointed at some point, you know, of their life, but realizing like that disappointment, that result that you didn't get, it's, it does not define you. Um, but it's going to make you better in some way. You've just got to do the work of figuring out how that's going to be. So I think it's all in, in the framing of it. It's okay to be disappointed if you come up short, but you can only let yourself be disappointed you know, for so long before you've got to dust yourself off, pick yourself up, and get out, get going again. Hey, we're taking a quick break because I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. It's my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. Tracksmith's products are designed to solve the problems that are unique to the experience of amateur training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of tights for chilly New England long runs or making split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets for a marathon, Tracksmith designers sweat the details. That also means they only work with the finest materials from soft and wicking merino wool in their base layers to water-repellent four-way stretch dry skin in their bislet pants. Whether you're training through the depths of winter or you need a special race day outfit to help power your next PR, Tracksmith has you covered. I personally own a ton of Tracksmith gear and I train and race in it all the time, including last month at the New York City Marathon. This holiday season, if you're trying to find the perfect gift to give a runner, consider gifting a Tracksmith Hair Athletics Club membership. The Hair AC is Tracksmith's global community of runners. I'm a founding member of it, and it grants you exclusive access to products, benefits, and events. Of note, if you run a PR as a member of the Hair AC, you're eligible to receive a $100 PR bonus. Visit tracksmith.com slash hair dash AC, that's H-A-R-E dash AC, to learn more. You can follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and do all of your shopping at tracksmith.com. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. 
this one from Mikey O, who gets the Mario Award for best running performance performances of the year. Oh, that's a fun question. Uh, we talking all of running, distance running, marathon running. Yeah, well, we could uh, subcategorize it if you wanted to. I mean, how do you not give it to Elliot Kipchoge in general? on the men's side. I mean, he won the London Marathon in April for the fourth time. He ran 202-something, smashed the course record. He's got the two fastest record-eligible marathons in history. And then this fall, he goes to Vienna and breaks, contrived or not, official record or not, breaks two hours for the marathon distance in front of a massive audience both in person and watching online like I was from Spokane, Washington. It's one of those moments like, where were you when Elliot Kipchoge broke two hours in the marathon? I was in Spokane, Washington, watching it streaming on a, on a big screen TV at midnight, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Um, so I've got to give it to just Elliot Kipchoge in general. Uh, and what about a f- female competitor? Uh- well, that same weekend that he broke two hours, I guess Bridget Koske ran 2.14 in Chicago, taking a huge chunk of time off of Paula Radcliffe's marathon. So, of course, like you almost have to ask to risk both of these because they were running the Vaporflies and then even the next version of the Vaporflies, which is going to be called the Alpha Fly uh, in Kipchoge's case for the for the two-hour marathon. People, some people might say, like, oh, that you know wouldn't have happened without that. Um but shoes aside, I mean, those are pretty outstanding performances. Koske dominated in Chicago. I'm a little weary of her just because of her associations. I'm not accusing her of anything, but she's one of Federico Rosa's athletes, and he just does not have the cleanest track record uh, when it comes to the integrity of his athletes' performances over the years. So I wasn't like quite as excited about that one. So if I had to replace a performance on... The women's side, I guess I would have to give it to, hmm. You know what? I'm going to go with Jenny Simpson winning the Fifth Avenue Mile in course record time, I think for like the eighth time. I think that was her eighth Fifth Avenue Mile win. Uh, She ran course record. She was wearing, to be fair, she was wearing the New Balance Mylar shoe 5280. I think it's called the 5280. Uh, shoe that was built specifically for racing road miles. Very niche shoe, but same idea, similar idea, I should say, as the Vaporfly with carbon fiber plate and some special foam in there. Um, but regardless, I mean, she won that race for the eighth time. She's probably worn a different pair of shoes every time that she's won it. She is the queen of that race, and to win it for the eighth time in course record time, for me, that is going to be Mario female performance of the year. I like it. Um, this question from Dan F. Uh, if you got an exclusive interview of Alberto Salazar, how would you prepare? What would you ask? How would you parry his denials and half-truths? I don't know. I mean, I would I would do a lot of due diligence in my, my preparation, things that he said in other interviews that he's written in his book um, that he said after, you know, his own races. And I, I'd want to try and understand the person at a very deep level, much like I do in many of the other interviews that I conduct for the Morning Shakeout podcast. And I think from those responses, hopefully, if you were being honest, it would paint a picture of how he thinks about 
his approach to life and sport and what's permissible and what's not. Fair enough. This one from Pete on the subject of running books. Have you ever thought of writing a running-related book? If so, what would your ideal subject matter be? So I actually have written a running-related book. In 2013, with Velo Press, I published the official rock and roll guide to marathon and half marathon training. I was working at Competitor Group at the time, which owned the rock and roll marathon series, and they asked me to write this training guide that would be on sale at expos and on the website and all that. It's For those of you listening, if you're interested in it, it's good for any half marathon or marathon. Uh, the actual content in there is evergreen and applicable to whatever half marathon or marathon that you would like to train for and there are beginner and intermediate plans in there i would actually love to get the rights back to that and i've talked to velopress a little bit about this where i can take what's in there and just expand upon it and dig a little bit deeper than i did the first time around change the title of the book not make it rock and roll branded since velopress and Rock and Roll Marathon series are no longer part of the same company because I think the information in there is solid and I stand by all of it, but I'd love to expand upon it with what I've learned. So if I were to do anything in the training, technical, coaching realm, it would be taking that book and improving upon it, making it better, expanding it in a few different ways. Another idea that I've tossed around now that I've done 89 episodes of the podcast as of this conversation is getting all of those transcribed because there are a number of themes that have run through those conversations that I think if compiled would make for a really compelling book. So I know there's a book in the last 89 episodes of the podcast and I'm sure I could include the next 89 episodes of the podcast And I don't know what that would look like yet, but I know there's something there. I just haven't spent enough time thinking about what it would be. Tim Ferriss wrote Tools of Titans, and he sort of based that on all of the podcast interviews that he's done for The Tim Ferriss Show and pulled out. He asked a lot of the same questions in his conversation, so it was pretty easy from that standpoint. It's like, oh, here's what Amelia Boone said about this. Here's what, you know, Jack Dorsey said about that. And, you know, who are... I know he had Amelia Boone. I don't know if he had Jack Dorsey. But my point being, like, you know, you could see what all these people across different domains said about a answer, how they answered a particular question. My conversations are a little more free-flowing than his, but there are definitely themes that, you know, have emerged about competitiveness, uh, certainly coaching philosophy, uh, creating a culture in your team environment, um, you know, how people got into running, how they think about um, the place that running holds in their lives, a lot of those same types of questions or themes end up emerging from those those conversations. I just need to take the time to re-explore them, pull them out, and see if there's a book there. So stay tuned. We look forward to reading it when it happens. <laughs> Next question from Alexis. Each week you ask your guests what they find exciting in the sport of running. You share in your newsletter things each week. But if you had to pick just one aspect that developed for you in 2019, looking to 2020, what would it be? Great question. One thing that 
excited me in 2019 heading into 2020 is this emergence of, I'll call it, underground running culture. In a lot of major cities here in the U.S. and around the world, there have been a lot of these sort of unsanctioned type of races that have been popping up on a grander scale, something like the Speed Project, which has been going on for a few years and has been growing every year. It's unsanctioned. There isn't a lot of information about it other than that it's going to happen. You know, in the spring, there's going to be all these teams that get into it and race from Santa Monica to Las Vegas as fast as they can as a team. And, and you know, there's fast runners who definitely do it, but it's relay style and people are really into it. There's been a lot of buzz growing around something like that. Take the Bridge, which is expanding. Um, Orchard Street Runners in New York are doing some cool things where, you know, they have these races that are usually at night on unmarked courses. There's maybe couple hundred dollars in prize money only a set number of athletes are invited and they're straight up racing and i love that kind of stuff i i think it's uh i think it's really exciting the sport itself not that it doesn't excite me but it's been following the same format for many years and clearly there is not much of a resurgence in those types of events in terms of in terms of interest i mean on some level yeah there are there's people who are going to watch the olympic trials in february and are watching major marathons every year and getting excited about that sort of thing um but i love seeing like on a very grassroots level these types of events popping up and they're about competition they're about community they're about going rogue in some ways going against the grain and you know, the people who are into them are into them and the people who aren't, they could care less, couldn't care less about. So, um, I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to take Liberty to add one more thing to that in 2019. And this is a continuation from 2018, 17, maybe even 16. It's certainly going to expand into 2020 is the rise of the competitive amateur. It's always been a thing as long as running has been around, but we're really seeing a resurgence in that over the last couple of years. And I think that's only going to grow heading into 2020 with the Olympic trials. CIM is this coming weekend. It's one of the last opportunities for Americans to qualify for the Olympic trials. And even though it's late in the game at this point, there's probably going to be another like 30 to 50 qualifiers, I would bet, this weekend, which is just insane. I think there are going to be over 500 women on the start line of the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon, which is just amazing. And I think that is going to continue to, to elevate the sport. And as I just mentioned, it desperately needs that. The Valencia Marathon was this past weekend and doesn't get quite as much attention here in the U.S., but I was digging through those results because I was curious how some people did. And for reference, I ran 227.33 at CIM last year, and I was like 133rd place or something like that. And Valencia, in some ways, it's like the CIM of Europe. In other ways, it's a lot different because the folks at the front are actually running a lot faster than the folks are running at CIM. But the depth is just as impressive. I mean, 227.33 at that race got you like 160-something place. Um, so I think that's really cool. And we're seeing it in 
these established races, I, again, I'm, I don't want to knock like any of the established races. They're great. I enjoy running them, but the amount of like excitement going on them, going on around them, has been like you know fairly consistent or stagnant for a while. But the excitement of people who are targeting these races to you know run fast is in a totally different place than it was even five years ago. And I think the competitive amateur runners are elevating one another to qualify for Boston to you know qualify for the Olympic trials. And I'm not trying to knock anyone who isn't targeting like those types of things, but at that end of the sport to see that much excitement from people who work full-time jobs, have a lot of things going on in their life, but are making the time to train for these things and to see you know what they're capable of to maybe extend their competitive careers a bit longer after college than they otherwise would have is a great thing for the sport and it's really exciting to see this question from jp uh, what do you want your legacy to be reporter journalist coach athlete something else i don't know that i have a legacy or what that would be or how I want to be remembered. I'm so focused on what I'm doing now and hopefully some of that can continue to impact people for years to come on a very personal level. The athletes that I coach, I want to have a positive impact on their lives. I want to help them achieve their goals, but I want to help make them better human beings. And if that's something that they can take away from their time working with me, then I'm completely satisfied with what I'm doing as a writer and a podcast host. Hopefully some of that stuff outlives me. People go back and read old newsletters or listen to old conversations and take something away from them that they can apply to their lives. I mean, I don't know what you would call that, but you know, if my work can sustain, I don't even know if sustain itself, can endure uh, much beyond me and people can take stuff away from it for years to come, then, I mean, that would make me really happy. I mean, my main goal with everything that I'm doing is to show people what's possible for themselves through the lens of running. And that's just what I'm focused on doing every day. I don't really think about the long-term effects of that, but, you know, obviously I hope it's something that, you know, impacts people for the rest of their lives and the stuff that lives on in the internet ether uh, continues to impact people long past my days. I like that. Um, there's been a recent addition to the household here in, in Nevada, right? Uh, and everyone wants to know, will uh, will Tahoe get featured on the podcast sometime soon? And- well, he had the opportunity to come on now, and he's <laughs> passed out behind us in in his bed. So uh, if, he, if he wakes up at some point and he wants to come over and put his snout in front of the mic, uh, happy to have him bark into it a few times. But yeah, we've had Tahoe for just uh, four days now, four and a half days, and it's crazy how quickly you can get attached to a pet. I know you've got a couple dogs of your own, but I said to Christine the other night, last night when we were eating dinner, I was like, what was life like before Tahoe? That was only like four days ago. Um, but yeah, I, I love having him. I took him to the track with me the other night as I was coaching a workout and been trying to expose him to as many people and dogs as possible so that he gets socialized. And he's like my little shadow here around the house. Before you got here, I was just doing some work on the computer upstairs in my office and he was passed out in the bed behind me. Uh, so we've already become best buds and 
who knows, maybe at some point he'll want to sit in your seat and I can bark some questions at him and he'll bark some answers back to me. He's going to help uh, make 2020 pretty exciting for you, I think. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he's our, I mean, I feel fortunate in that I feel like I live a very full life, but he has made it that much more complete, which sounds really corny and cheesy, but it's absolutely true. And I know you get it as a dog person, anyone listening to this uh, who has a pet that they're super close with understands where I'm coming from with that. Training related, Um, more miles or more sleep if you had to pick one? More sleep. Most people don't need to be forcing more miles if they're not getting enough sleep uh more more mile i mean you should run as many miles as you can sustain but i would say based on my observations as a coach and an athlete most people aren't sleeping enough um and they're trying to force more miles despite the demands of their job or you know their family uh or they're running more miles at the expense of sleep and i think if it comes down to it and again a lot of this depends on where you are in your trajectory as an athlete but you don't get better when you're working out which sounds crazy. You get better when you're at rest. That is where you are absorbing all of the work that you've put in. So if you are not resting properly, you are not absorbing all of the work that you put in and therefore you are not going to get much better. So yes, you need to run as many miles as you can. Uh, I would say most runners, you know, probably should run a little bit more, but make sure that you're getting your sleep. If it comes down to one or the other, definitely more sleep. Have you found for yourself a sweet spot for the amount of sleep that you need to be performing at your best each day? Yeah, I've got to be between seven and nine hours, which is pretty standard from a recommendation standpoint. But I've found over the years and through periods of shortened sleep uh, that if I'm not getting at least that, then I am just not on my game mentally. Like physically, I'm just dragging ass around the house all day, and that certainly is not going to translate into good running. I'm just not getting as much out of the work that I am putting in if I'm not putting in the right amount of sleep as well. It affects your life as a whole, more or less. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for your overall health. I mean, again, back to what we were saying at the top of this conversation about, you know, low hanging fruit. I mean, the, the, best things that we can all do as athletes, but just as human beings are sleep more and eat better. And I'm not going to get into a, a, you know, complicated, nuanced argument about like, what's the best type of diet to follow? Because I just believe in balance. I am not a follower of any one particular dietary strategy. Um, But I mean, I do think eating healthy and eating a balanced diet and getting a good amount of sleep, they go a long way just towards your overall health, your vitality, clarity of thinking, certainly performance, mood, all of those things uh, are affected by what you eat and how much you sleep. For people at the, you know, end of the year, beginning of the new year, kind of a transition, um, struggling to choose a training plan, uh, this question from Travel's Travels runs. I've used coaches for my five previous marathons, but not really in a time or place to pay for and commit to a coach this spring and trying to decide between Hanson's Daniels or paying for someone to write a plan 
pros or cons with these options, your advice for self-coaching if if I go that route, or using a plan to really try and improve my fitness for the marathon? It's a tricky one because plans are usually not personalized. So you can go and buy those types of plans. And they're, they're good plans. Like looking at them objectively, it's like, yeah, that's a pretty well-structured training plan. But it doesn't take into account the athlete, their experience, their lifestyle. Um, there are a number of good coaches who you can contact and you have to pay them because this is their job and what they do, who will either get on the phone with you for an hour and walk through a plan that you've created for yourself and can offer you insight on how to customize that or they can ask you some very like you know pointed questions about who you are where you want to go your experience level how much time you have all that sort of thing and create a custom plan for you on that and i think that's money well spent uh if you're doing it with a a credible coach and again do your research on that um but i think it's hard to say whether you should choose this plan or that plan they're all good and you know not all of them are good but many of them are good like standing on their own but i don't know anything about you as an athlete so i can't really you know make that type of of recommendation but i would say look back at your training history um if you're not new at this and try and identify or maybe hire a coach for an hour to help you identify what worked well what was contributing to your success as an athlete, maybe what was missing, uh, and using that information to write a plan for yourself that you can use for your next training cycle. This question from Farah kind of dovetails off that, you know, so you pick a plan, you get training and you get injured. What's the best way to keep your fitness? Depends what kind of fitness you want to keep, uh, or what the injury is and what that means for what you're trying to do. Because if it's an unfortunate catastrophic injury that is going to completely derail your entire training cycle and you're just not going to be able to do the race that you're doing, um, the best thing you can probably do is rest at first. If it's a more minor injury and you're going to be able to get back to running in a few weeks, I would try first to find the cross training activity that most closely mimics running. If you have access to an Alter G treadmill and the means to get on one a few times a week, that's the best thing that you can do because you're actually running at a reduced portion of your body weight and you can continue on your planned training without stressing your body nearly as much as running. Uh, if you can do that and if it's recommended by the medical professional that you're consulting with because you should always consult with someone when you are injured. Um, from there, Pool running works great. I know many athletes, myself included, athletes that I've coached who have gotten into a pool and maintained or even improved their fitness by running hard in the pool because there's no impact um, and you can go hard almost every day in the pool because of that absence of impact and you can keep your heart rate pretty high and it's mind-numbingly boring from time to time, which I think translates because it just hardened you a little bit from, from that standpoint, but you can absolutely maintain a very high level of fitness doing that. Um, I've had athletes get on a spin bike and do interval workouts um, where it's not 
a direct translation to running like the Alter G or running in deep water is, but you can get your heart rate up pretty high. You can do the same types of workouts, VO2 max, lactate threshold, tempo type stuff, uh, but on a bike. And you've got to, you know, obviously modify the amount of time that you're doing those types of things. But if it's a matter of maintenance, because it's only going to be a short period of time till you can run again, that those are all, you know, very good options. But I think regardless of the severity of the injury or the situation, the first thing that I tell athletes who are injured, it's like, let's focus on what you can do, not what you can't. You can't run. And oftentimes when we're injured, that's the thing that we focus on. Like, God, I can't, I can't run. This is awful. It sucks. And yes, it absolutely does. But you can do something in most cases. 99% of people who are injured can do something. So if you can do any of those things that I just described, go and do those. And that's going to give you a sense of purpose. It's going to help you feel like you're working towards something and it's going to help you to either maintain or continue to develop your fitness. If you can't, maybe it's a good opportunity to get in the gym and go work on becoming a stronger athlete. If the reason that you got injured is because there's a weakness somewhere that you hadn't addressed, this is your chance to go and address that. And when you are able to get back to running, you are going to have a more solid foundation than you did before you got injured and hopefully won't get injured again. So bottom line is focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. I think I have time to sneak in one more question here. Okay. Um, And I think everyone knows you as a coach and a podcaster and a writer, but you're an incredible athlete as well. And so just curious with no stated racing goals planned in the, in the new year, what or how will you channel any extra energy or time you you have into coaching a new project? So (laughs) all of the, all of the above, I've been thinking a lot about this in the last few weeks. I ran New York city marathon on, November 3rd. I have nothing on my calendar for the rest of this year. It's winding down quickly. I have nothing planned for spring or summer or fall of 2020. I may leave it at that because when I'm training for a race and I look back, I have run a race every year, at least one for the last 23 years. I have not had a year since I've been involved in the sport of running where I haven't raced. And I'm not saying I won't race in 2020, but I don't want to focus on that right now because I have other things, Tahoe behind us, uh, my wife and adventures that we want to go on, but things that I want to do, you know, on the coaching side of things, on the podcast and newsletter side of things that are going to require more time and energy that if I'm putting that into my own running, I'm not putting it toward those things. So I'm just going to shift my focus a little bit toward making the podcast better, making the newsletter a little bit better, being a little more attentive and available for my athletes as a coach. I mean, if I am taking away a little bit of training time, which I'm not planning on running nearly as much as I was when I was certainly when I was training for the marathon, but you know, in general, so from running a little bit less, taking some of that time to read a little bit more. And some of that is reading for pleasure and stuff that I'll put into the morning shakeout. But I've gotten away in the last like six to 12 months, not reading nearly as much stuff that I can apply to coaching. So that's you know, training books and manuals and like performance related books that 
I was reading pretty regularly up until, you know, maybe the last like six to 12 months. I want to get back to like making more time for those things. And I think by focusing a little less on running, putting a little less time toward my competitive running pursuits that hopefully I'll be able to do that. I don't want to do more of any of the other stuff. Like I'm pretty happy with the cadence of the newsletter. It's been weekly for four years now. I'm in a good rhythm with that but I think I can make it better. I think I can pay a little more attention to details when I'm editing it before sending it out and I'm not staying up super duper late on Mondays and just being like, F it, it's gone. I'm not going to go back and like proofread or anything like that. So like, you know, dotting my I's and crossing my T's and in that manner, same thing with the podcast. I mean, we're in a weekly rhythm with it now. One thing I haven't been great about doing is getting ahead. I've had periods where I'm like four to six episodes ahead. I have them like, you know, in the can and I can get into a better routine of listening through editing sending those off to john uh, so that he can put them together for production and right now i'm only like two episodes ahead so i want to be able to put more time toward podcasting and you know getting a little further ahead in the episodes but also just being able to prepare a little bit better for some of the episodes i prepare for every one that i do but i feel like i could do a better job as far as that goes so I just want to take a little of that focus off of my own running and put it into these other, you know, five areas of my life now between, you know, my wife, family, friends, and dog and work like that, you know, I, I don't want to add anything to that. Like I'm, I'm happy with like the amount of stuff that I have going on, but I want those to be higher quality pursuits. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I'm thinking about it. Perfect. So is that it? Last one? Last question, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming by to ask me questions. Thanks to everyone out there who submitted questions. There were a lot that we didn't get to, but I'm grateful for everyone who sent one in, training-related, podcast, writing, life-related. I I love the variety of it. Um, For me, uh, it's one man's experiences. I don't claim to be an expert in all of this stuff. I'm certainly experienced as a coach, as a writer, as a podcaster, and I can share what I've learned through the years. But I like thinking about a lot of this stuff because I'll go back after this conversation and think a little bit harder about some of the questions that were thrown my way. So I appreciate everyone who submitted a question. I appreciate you being here to ask them for me. And we will do this again a few months from now. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right, that does it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. What did you think? If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. Whether you're training through the depths of winter or you need a special race day outfit to help power your next PR, Tracksmith has you covered. I personally own a ton of Tracksmith gear and I train and race in it all the time, including last month at the New York City Marathon. This holiday season, if you're trying to find the perfect gift to give a runner, consider gifting a Tracksmith Hair Athletics Club membership. The Hair AC is Tracksmith's global community of runners, 
I'm a founding member of it, and it grants you exclusive access to products, benefits, and events. Of note, if you run a PR as a member of the Hair AC, you're eligible to receive a $100 PR bonus. Visit tracksmith.com slash hair dash AC, that's H-A-R-E dash AC, to learn more. You can follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and do all of your shopping at tracksmith.com. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show, and he makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 